0: Good morning again. So, um, the 2019 film Knives Out <clears throat> is a story. Central character is uh, Marta Cabrera, played by the actress Anna de Armas. She is the caretaker for a uh, <clears throat> wealthy but rather dysfunctional family. And she, she takes care of the patriarch of the family. When the patriarch is, is murdered, Uh, The investigation begins, and the lead detective, played by Daniel Craig with the most wonderful southern accent ever developed by a Brit, discovers that Marta has a secret, Marta has a condition, she cannot lie. If she lies, she becomes sick to her her stomach, and uh, she vomits. It provides for some interesting scenes and some comic relief, as you might imagine. But can you imagine... Can you imagine the reality that if everyone you knew, uh, every person, if they, if they had that condition, that if they lied, they would get sick and vomit? Or better yet, maybe we should all just have one of these. You'd, you'd always know when someone was lying, right? Because a study as uh, recent as 2009 said that men in the West, I believe men in the West, over their lifetime lie an average of more than 126,000 times. Women fare a little better, uh, a lot better, actually. They lie just over half as much as men do over their lifetimes, but women live longer, so the average per year is better, so way to go, women. Another study suggests that we are lied to up to 200 times a day, and that we tell lies one to two times a day. That one may be a bit conservative. But you imagine if everybody had that malady, if we had that malady, you'd always know when someone was lying it would sounds a bit messy like you might need to carry a mop and a bucket with you everywhere you go well of course it doesn't work that way for most of us most of us can go whole days without realizing we've been lied to up to 200 times most of us can get away with the one to two lies we might tell and still Jesus asks something more of us in the Sermon on the Mount he wants us to be people of integrity people of truth he wants us to live lives a different way, to to go in a different direction, to swim against the tide, to live into the kingdom of God kind of life that he provides for us, which gets us to our good news again. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live life purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. And so now in the Sermon on the Mount, here at week six, Jesus jumps into some more midrash that he does. A midrash, you remember, is an ancient Jewish form of commentary on scripture, particularly the law of Moses. And Jesus says this, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Jesus takes the law of Moses and he does some reshaping of it in the passage that follows. But this is where he gets it from. He gets it from two or three places in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. That's one place. Another one is Leviticus 19, 12. Do not swear falsely by my name, God says, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. That concern about profaning the name of God comes to us from the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Old translations say, do not use the name of the Lord in vain. To misuse the Lord's name is to use it carelessly. And uh, faithful Jews knew that you just didn't do that, so they would be careful not to ever say the name of God, the name of God being Yahweh, because they didn't want to accidentally misuse God's name. And so that's why you see in the Old Testament, in certain passages in the Old Testament, like this one, you see that the word Lord is all caps. Whenever you see that in your English Old Testaments, the word Lord all in caps, it's telling you there's another word there. It's not the word Lord. The word there is Yahweh. It is God's name. Faithful Jews, when reading it out loud in the Hebrew, would come to that word, but they would not say Yahweh. They would say the Hebrew word for Lord, which was Adon or Adonai. So English translations honor that by doing this so that we see that that is actually the name of God. You can imagine, though, that uh, if people are are dealing with uh, trying not to misuse or abuse the name of God, that they've got to come up with other ways to do things. So what they would do is they would develop substitutes, things you could say that sounded high but weren't quite God. So maybe people, would, if you were making an oath, swearing by something, you could say, Uh, I swear by this, I swear by heaven, I swear by earth, I swear by Jerusalem, something like that. Because you were substituting it, but everybody knew you sort of meant God, but you were trying to pull back from misusing the name of God. And so Jesus says to us in, again at verse 34 and on, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So here we have people trying to not misuse the name of God, trying to keep the law according to strictly just what the law says, and putting in substitutes, and as Jesus says that doesn't work. That doesn't make you any less accountable by swearing by something less than God. You still shouldn't do it. And you see Jesus and you see that people probably were trying to outdo one another, right? Trying to come up with more things Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 23. Woe to you blind guys, you say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath, you blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath, you blind men, which is greater? The gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he finishes that section out. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. This is Jesus' way of saying, look, no matter what you swear by, God is over it all. God touches it all. And because of that, it's sacred. You may think that you have pulled back and removed yourself from accidentally misusing God's name by doing this, but it's all sacred. It all matters because God is over it all, and you are still held accountable for your oath. Don't do it. During um, the time of Jesus, there was a sect of Judaism, very rigid uh, sect of people known as the Essenes. They lived out in the desert. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in 1947, the belief is that uh, it was the Essenes who handed those down to us that had them hidden in a cave there. Uh, The Essenes had a very strict theology. Uh, Most scholars believe that in some way their theology impacted and influenced Jesus. And others believe it's possible that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was in fact an Essene. And in their strict adherence to the law, they avoided oaths at all costs because they didn't want to use the name of the Lord in vain. They avoided oaths at all costs, so much so that Josephus, who was an historian during that time, says this about the Essenes: Any word of theirs has more force than an oath. Swearing they avoid, regarding it as worse than perjury. For they say that one who is not believed without an appeal to God stands condemned already. In other words, if you appeal to God, that you are to prove that you are telling the truth. If you, in our way, if you. Uh, say, I swear on a stack of Bibles because one Bible is just not good enough. If you have to go that far to prove that you are a person of integrity, a person whose word can be trusted, then you are already a liar before a word comes out of your lips. What we need is integrity. What you need is to know you shouldn't even have to do that. You should become a kind of person who never has to swear an oath. And Jesus echoes this sentiment. The last verse in our passage. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Sometimes when Jesus speaks, his words can be confusing. Parables, the parables are not all that easy to understand. There are some where you know the disciples certainly struggle with it. And there are some that we're still wrestling with today that we don't completely understand what he meant. Sometimes Jesus asks, answers a question with a question. And I kind of picture his disciples occasionally sitting around going... What what does it even mean, Jesus? And then sometimes, sometimes Jesus says exactly what he means, and there's no doubt what he means. It's clear, and it's to the point like here. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is a bit of a mic drop moment. It's really clear. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. But it's not like one of those stop it moments that we talked about last week. It's not like that. It's more of an invitation. It's more of an invitation into a a better way of life. A life of integrity and truth. A life of consistency. It's an invitation into a better way of life. It's an invitation to a better destination. And I want to say a little bit of words, a little bit of word about destination here. We often talk about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself mentions it in this passage a few times. The kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Now, if you, my experience is that most of us, including, including me, grew up thinking when I heard the language of the kingdom of heaven, when I heard the language of you will or will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven, I had in mind, and I think many, if not most people do as well, had in mind that Jesus is talking about the afterlife, where we go when we die. Raise your hand if that's what you grew up with, if that's kind of what you thought the kingdom of heaven was. If you're online, give us a hand emoji, say amen, say yep, that's me whatever you want to do, most of us, I think, probably were taught that or, or came to believe that. And that's not, the, it's not that that's not true. I am going to be clear. That is very much a part of what it means to enter. But I think there's something more going on here. I think there's something more going on here because Jesus is pretty strong in, this, in the Sermon on the Mount and what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it can sound an awful like we're having to work awfully hard at it. But there's a problem there. Let's take a look earlier in chapter 5. We've already looked at these verses before, but let's look at them again. Right after Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill that he says this. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. a few things going on here. First of all, I want to say I do think it's important where we go when we die. I do think that's an important question that has to be answered, but I also think there's more going on here. Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven three times. You can be great in the kingdom of heaven, you can be least in the kingdom of heaven, and you may not even enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know that in other places in scripture, Jesus and others are very clear that the way we experience eternal life with God is by a gift, a free gift of God's grace that we access by our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. So I think there's something more going on here. and It has to do with the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is ours. We have access to it now. I think Jesus is saying, look, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God now, if you want to enjoy and experience the kingdom of God life now, You need to keep these commands. You need to become the kind of person that does these things. In this context, you need to become a truthful person, a person of integrity that is far better for you. Put another way, if we do not allow the Sermon on the Mount to shape us and to become a part of us, we will not enjoy life in the kingdom of God in the here and now. We will not even enter it. I am not saying you will not live with Jesus when you die. I'm not saying eternity is not yours. I'm saying you will miss out now. Put slightly a different way. Eternity in heaven is not in question, but heaven on earth is. Your promise of eternal life with God is not in question if you fail to keep the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. But whether or not heaven can exist on earth in any way, shape, or form is. Because we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we kind of have to cooperate with that. We kind of have to allow the will of God to be done in our lives too. Eternity, your eternity in heaven is not in question, but heaven on earth is. And why would you want to wait? If the life in the kingdom is about letting go of your anger and becoming a whole and more healthy person, why wouldn't you want to get rid of anger and hate and murder why don't you want to become the kind of person either through spiritual disciplines or th- therapy who less and less struggles with lust? Why would you not want to become the kind of person who, who does the work to have a healthy marriage or singles to be the kind of person who looks at other human beings and, as people made in God's image rather than as an object? Why would you not want to become a more truthful, trustworthy person in all your relations? Why wait? The kingdom is now. And if you choose to wait, you will not enter into it. You will not experience it. You will not enjoy it now. Part of what Jesus wants us to do is to enjoy that life. I want to tell you about a podcast, uh, the Hidden Brain podcast. It's an NPR podcast. I put a link to it in the Bible app, live event. There was one they did a, a few weeks ago that was all about keeping secrets. And these were little secrets. They interviewed people. But what it did to the person who told a little lie... And then had to keep covering that lie up, and the impact it had on them. You see, not being a truthful person hurts you as much as it, hurt, or maybe more than it hurts anybody else. Why wouldn't you want to live into all that God has for you now—the life that Jesus wants, a life of integrity and truthfulness? There's no doubt that Jesus is talking about public oaths and public vows here—things we say to prove that we're telling the truth. I swear to you by God's throne. I pledge to you, whatever. He's definitely talking about. It, but there's. something more going on here because I think that again what Jesus is really after here is that we become kingdom people that we become people who more and more have Christ formed into us that we become people who value the ethics of the kingdom that we gradually move more and more in the direction of being more trustworthy and more have more integrity and more truthful because it's better for us it's better for the community we're a part of And that's a possibility, to become a people who are truthful, people who do not resort to lying because it's a better way to get by. However, the reality is if we remain who we are, if we never take the steps to enter fully into that that gift that is ours, to be able to be transformed, to move towards Christiformity, we will miss out on life in the kingdom now. And we're the ones that are hurt by that. <clears throat> invariably the question that comes up when we talk about truth telling is are there times when it's best not to tell the whole unvarnished truth there have been people down through history and there are people to this day who would say to you, you should always tell the truth honesty is always the best policy even if it hurts someone but james brian smith in the book the good and beautiful life suggests that that is not the case he has a caveat <clears throat> he says look the the, the, big, the greatest commandment Jesus gave us was love of God and love of neighbor. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do for a neighbor is not tell them the whole truth. When the truth would harm them rather than help them. You may or may not agree with that. But let me read to you his... Uh, he calls these the limits of honesty because of love. Let me read to you the... Uh, passage you can put it in context. While I'm not advocating lying or deception, I believe that loving others, which is the highest goal, may involve not telling someone everything we think or know in every circumstance. It takes discernment and wisdom to decide when honesty is helpful and when it is harmful. Most of us can probably think of a case when someone told us the truth and it wasn't that helpful. We're going to need help in discerning and to find that discernment and that wisdom We need to lean into the discipline of prayer. We need to lean in and learn to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need to trust our own experience and gather wise counsel from others. You see, the goal in all this is not, again, as I've said all along, is not that we keep more laws, not that we don't sin. The goal is that we become the kind of people for whom life in the kingdom of God is second nature. Life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount is second nature. Christ is more and more formed within us to the point that we are now living our lives as Jesus would live them if he were us. And that's about transformation. But we don't engage in that journey of transformation. We don't enter into the kingdom and learn the kingdom way of life all on our own or in a vacuum. We have the presence and the power of the kingdom of God to assist us. And we have spiritual practices. And the one, if you're reading the book, The Good and Beautiful Life, the spiritual practice for this week is silence. <clears throat> Kim and I uh, keep about 10 minutes of silence almost every day. <clears throat> like to do more, to be honest, but it's not always easy to do it. We find it very transformative. Sometimes you hear silence and solitude together. I put the whole thing in the Bible app, and I'll show you that in just a minute. But... Um, I was reminded of something this morning that Henry Nowen, the late Henry Nowen, said. Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. Silence and solitude, sitting in God's presence, in the quiet, is transformative. So the spiritual discipline for this week is silence. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to tell you, it's in the Bible app live event. I simply took what was in the book, literally, and just pasted it in there. Because he gives several ideas for how you can observe silence this week. And if you've never done it, I especially invite you to try it. That's how you get to the Bible app if you don't have it. Another way that we can engage and respond to this, because if it's true... If it's true that God wants to make us into these kind of kingdom people, if it's true that there's there's a kingdom life out there waiting for if it's true that we have the power of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to empower us to live this way, how are we going to respond? One is the discipline of silence. Another one would be to observe a holy Lent, as we call it. In the past few years, we have had interactive Ash Wednesday service. Ash Wednesday is this week. It begins the season of Lent. This year, we decided to do it a bit differently uh, given the, the pandemic and all the things we have to adjust in order to make it uh, safe but also interactive, it's going to be all online. So if you show up here Sunday, Wednesday at 6, no one else will be here. <laughs> uh, it'll, all, it'll launch Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. online uh, on Facebook and YouTube. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. It'll also be there after that if you can't get there right at 6 o'clock. Uh, we have worship kits for each household, one per household, please. So if you're joining us online, swing by the church in the next few days and pick up one of those kits. And uh, if you're here in the room, you can walk out in the lobby. They're in the, on the cart in the center aisle. Another way you can observe a Holy Lent, we've done this a few times, is to invite you to take part in Lenten prompts that come to, through a text on your phone. And you get to that, and every year we have to explain over and over how you do it, because people aren't used to doing it. But in the two part of the texting app, you put the number 81010 in the body of the text, you put at Lent ECC, and that will sign you up to get one on Ash Wednesday, and then every day, every weekday through Lent at 8 a.m. in the morning, you'll get a prompt for prayer, for reflection, something like that. People have found this helpful. I encourage you to do it. And then, as always, we have our Kingdom Conversations that we engage in at noon today, and we will engage in that uh, for about 30 or 45 minutes, and the best way to get to that, honestly, is to go to ecclife.net. Look at the top of, it's right there, I'm sure now already, a banner that says click here if you want to join the Zoom conversation. We've been having some good conversations around the message, questions and answers, around other things that tie into that. And sometimes around the book, The Good and Beautiful Life. The other thing I want to say is we need to listen to the Spirit to be open to what ways we need to respond to this. I've given you some things. But what ways might God be calling you to respond? If it's true that God wants to make of us a kingdom of people, this is true that he's given us the power to do that, what, how do you need to respond to the Spirit? What do you need to do? Those were some ways you can do it. The other thing I want you to do is to ask the Spirit questions. Are there, is, there, is there some need to apologize to someone this week or this day? Is there some place you need to engage in uh, more confession and repentance and restitution? Is there... Some place you need to do that. Maybe there's someone that you've lied to in your own household and you need to, today or this week, spend time with them, confess that, ask for forgiveness and try to move forward. Maybe you've lied in business or in the place of work and you need to set up a time to say, this is what I've done, I want to make it right. Maybe, Maybe the way you lie is how you live your life. You pretend to be something you're not. Maybe you need to come to God and ask him to help you with that. Maybe you lie to yourself. You know you're not who you pretend to be. What do you need to do? Where do you need to make an apology? Where do you need to confess, to repent, to seek restitution? Where do you need to pray? What response is God asking for you? Now, if any of these, if you've never even entered into the kingdom before, or if any of these you want to help with, you want to have conversation about, you can email us at prayer at ecclife.net. That goes to the pastors. We will connect with you on any of these things maybe it's your first time to enter the kingdom maybe you're just struggling with how to move forward in your own journey of transformation whatever it is Uh, reach out to us we would love to pray with you love to help you get connected to some resources to pray with me as we close good and gracious God we thank you for the gift of the kingdom of heaven that is in our midst we thank you for your promise Lord God to meet us where we are We thank you for your grace that is there for us, Lord, that this doesn't depend on us doing it perfectly or even well. We thank you that you have a plan for us and a purpose for us. We ask, Lord, I ask, for wherever each of us are in this journey, God, that you would speak to us, that we would hear you, that we would respond to this good news and step out in faith. I pray for those who might be worshiping with us today who have never entered into the kingdom, who have never responded to the call of Christ repented of sin and entered in lord would you speak to them as well and for all lord god who need help help them to find someone who can walk with them pray with them help them to find the courage to reach out and email us lord that we could take a step further and i pray lord as we enter into the season of Lent, that we would all engage faithfully in reflection and prayer and repentance as you lead us and may you receive all the glory all the honor all the praise in jesus name